Welcome to the Zeal Interestings Podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White. Today, I have a special guest, Will Larson. He's the Infrastructure Engineering Manager at Stripe. Uh, thank you for joining me, Will. Uh, thank you. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to get to chat with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. In my personal work, I, I've tended to only work on early stage companies and smaller engineering projects. So my personal experience with large infrastructure problems is, is pretty limited. So that's kind of the first thing that I wanted to ask you about. Like, What, what are the kinds of challenges that, that you see working for large infrastructure groups? And what, what, what does an infrastructure engineer do at these large companies? I think that's a great point, which is that you, you, you go to school and there's really not many classes on infrastructure. There are classes on distributed engineering, distributed systems. But, but often in, in practice, like what, what works in like a, a Paxos or a raft or, or a swim algorithm, and then work, what works when you build it are, are quite, quite far apart. So I think the, the most exciting thing about infrastructure engineering is that it's really like a practiced skill. It's a profession where you just kind of spend some time Learning and often learning by failing. Um, sometimes quite, quite uh, impressive ways to fail, as I've learned at various times throughout my career. In terms of infrastructure engineering, that the term is a bit of a term of art. Different companies do handle it a little bit differently. Some companies it's almost like a site reliability engineer, and some companies mm-hmm. it is is a little bit different. Um, but the companies that I've worked at recently, and the comp- what I think is the standard across the industry these days, is people writing software to automate and run large-scale distributed systems is, I think, the gotcha. closest to a canonical definition. So the, the primary service that you, you and your group provide is they're, you know, having huge distributed approaches to the problems of these companies is, is kind of an assumption. So uh, being able to roll out and scale those systems in, in a programmatic way or via tools is, is kind of what you provide. I, I think that's right. There's this idea that actually most of the platforms your business has to build are are not actually differentiated or kind of inherently valuable to the business. And it's actually building your products and kind of the the product engineering is the most invaluable thing to the business. Then infrastructure is really the question of how can we make sure that the business can spend as little time as possible on the infrastructure without having the compromises or the consequences that come from having like poor security or slow systems or something like that. But really, how can we shelter the product engineers from this complexity. Making sure that your product engineers don't spend time configuring servers or making security decisions when they don't need to or probably shouldn't be. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Uh, I have a note here to kind of ask you to paint a picture of what projects and scenarios you run into as a large engineering org. In the article that we'll introduce soon, you talked about a big migration that occurred at Uber as well. Can you kind of paint like a, a visual picture of or an audio picture even, of what it's like to kind of run these large projects and how many people get interacted with, et cetera? That's a great question. I think there, there's kind of two canonical projects that most people will go through at some point in their career. And, and one of them is the total system rewrite, where you have a version that mm-hmm. is doing something, but they just have decided to throw it away and rewrite it from scratch. A, a great example that I went through of that is DigV4. We actually had a really successful kind of news aggregator, and we decided to rewrite it from scratch. And that was a extremely interesting project where we learned a lot of things that did and did not kind of work as well as we hoped. Um, then you have the other kind of canonical project, which is the move um, usually from like a monolith, usually like the first kind of implementation your, your company has to either uh, usually like a, a number of microservices or kind of 
moderately sized yeah. services. And, and the Uber migration that that piece talks about is really understanding how it can move from a single kind of monolithic Python application, which was doing a ton of value for the business, but it got increasingly challenging for people to modify and extend into, um, at this point, thousands of, of microservices. Yeah, yeah. So it, it seems like to me like the, the need for microservices scales pretty in, in line with the number of engineers and like the number of, of just functions of an application. If you were to estimate how many engineers were trying to participate in this one monolith. And so I think it's not it's definitely not the case that every company needs to move from a monolith to microservices. There, there's many cases where uh-huh. code quality, your abstractions are high enough that you can keep with the the monolith um, really indefinitely. And some companies like Facebook have actually done remarkable work around allowing like the PHP component of their application to really stay in a monolithic model for, for, for even, as I understand it, through today. If you think about a large-scale migration, though, you're actually trying to move every piece of functionality you have to a new implementation. And oftentimes, right. people kind of couple like new programming languages into that change as well, and it can get extremely complicated to think about but um, in terms of the, the service migration at, at Uber, effectively every engineer was implicated. And at that point, it was uh, about 2,000 engineers. They weren't doing it full time, but right. it was every engineer was implicated and spent like a significant amount of time on that shift. That's amazing. That, that outfactors any, any size of engineering team I've been by quite a lot. So uh, it's, it just sounds like a very uh, challenging, coordinated effort. Well, I think the most interesting thing is like when you do these large migrations, you actually have a choice about the level of coordination complexity you want to take on versus the level of kind of technical complexity you want to solve for. And in that case, I actually think we found a good hybrid. Uh, coordinating 2,000 engineers is like staggeringly hard. And there, yeah. there's some technical problems that are hard, but I'm not sure if there's any technical problem that is harder than the project coordination of 2,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great point. That's a great point. I did want to take the chance to introduce your article uh, that were that we that kind of brought my attention to this topic. Uh, it's called "The Migrations and the Sole Scalable Fix to Tech Debt," and it seems like some of these bigger migrations inspired you to write this article. But it seems like sometimes local optimization on teams is not enough to solve tech debt. And so therefore, these larger migrations are a great opportunity for that. Is that kind of the thesis of your article? Uh, That's exactly right. So individuals, pretty much if you go work at any company, people hate technical debt. And this is like a thing that people will talk about constantly. How can we kind of manage our technical debt? And really what I found over time is that individual engineers, if they can solve something, if they can make something better, they will just go do it. And and that's great. Um, And then there's certain like larger problems, but often a team can go do it. Say like four or five people working together can go solve this problem together. And usually a team is small enough that they can self-authorize and just go solve this problem together. And so really what you find is that just organically, the teams, the individuals will solve most small technical debt problems. And the only technical debt problems left are these really large ones that require an entire organization working together um, in unison to actually fix them. And that's why I think migrations are, are such an important part of running a software engineering organization, but also a company that's kind of a, of the technology company shape. So, mm-hmm. so the the limitations that these sorts of migrations are intended to fix, are they, it, it sounds like they're mostly around like big infrastructural 
problems that are inherent to the way, to the approach that was taken in building the application that that tends to be the the kind of the core of why these start to happen i think the most interesting migrations have two properties one to your point there's like a, a core infrastructure component that is just not scaling well and two switching that requires invalidating every engineer's existing mental model of how the system works so it's not just uh, it's not just going from like a sql to no sql data store or something it's also requiring them to completely relearn how to think about the application, which is quite, quite challenging. Right. So instead of like jobs and polling, you're moving to like real time kind of kind of issues. And, and that's just kind of a humongous paradigm shift as far as thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I think batch to streaming is a great example of, of where people's just mental models get uh, broken by this type of change. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I thought you made a great point in the article that at least comforted me as someone who works on extremely early stage companies that solutions are designed that are designed for one scale are kind of supposed to and expected to fail at a different scale. I don't know if you were trying to give me therapy, but that definitely gave me permission to use approaches that don't necessarily assume, you know, mega corp scale. And so thank you for that. Yeah, it, it's funny. It goes a little bit of both ways. I think if you start a new startup in 2018, you're probably like running a Kubernetes and you're just getting a lot of great design patterns for free and for cheap. Right. And so I think when you can, you should get these like free cheap patterns that are going to scale with you for a long time. But there's also cases when you actually have don't get the patterns cheaply or they're, they're quite expensive I think in those cases, you, there, there's kind of the old agile, like uh, Yagni, you ain't going to need it. And I really think that really applies here. You just don't understand what your future constraints will be. So solving for what your future constraints will be two years out is generally a bad idea, unless you've done this before, where you can like very accurately predict the future. Right, right. Unless you have someone on the team who has been through the same kind of migration before and kind of guide it and shepherd it and, and has and, and can set the organization's expectations around what kind of effort it's going to involve. I feel like when when I hear people propose like rewrites or humongous migrations, a lot of times it, it comes out of a place of frustration, but like the proposal doesn't address these kind of big risks around the migration. I think sometimes definitely seen that. Sometimes you also have people who have actually made this mistake before, and it's almost traumatic to ask them to go through the journey of making the mistake a second time. But I sometimes see. I think it is necessary to take on short-term limited solutions in order to actually... There's this model of the iterative tournament model, which is you have to keep winning every round to advance to the next round. And if, uh, if you don't yeah. do well enough in the current round because you're designing something phenomenal, um, then you don't you don't get to keep playing. And I think a lot of companies like this model is, is useful because a lot of times you just, your business will go under or lose its potential like upside. If you try to do the long-term thing too, too quickly. Right. So in other words, it definitely isn't wise to like assume that you have no infrastructure problems in an early stage, choosing the right solutions for the stage you're in can, you know, like you said, get you to the next round. And you can, if you, you know, if you have people that are dreaming of, of this amazing infrastructure that supports a, one of the largest companies in the world, you don't get to build that if you don't get to that phase. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it. So I really liked how you broke it out into the steps of uh, doing these large migrations and that you started with de-risking. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like in a large organization? Absolutely. So de-risking, I, I think that the, the most important thing when you start a migration is to think about you're actually asking 
dozens or hundreds or maybe thousands of people to take a bet on you on this change. And particularly, there's like this small cohort of early adopters, and you're asking them to like really put um, their time and maybe their, even their reputation at risk to come on board with what you're trying to do. And that is why it's so important to make sure that the migrations really solve the problem and two, that you're going to be able to complete them once you start. And so I see. some of the ways that we think about how to do this, um, the, the first step is really ensuring you have a design document that is addressing the concerns and then shop it around as much as possible. There's this idea of mining for dissent. And I think this is a really powerful idea of finding, finding the people who disagree the most and really, really making sure that you've spoken through it and aren't just like uh, disengaging from them, but are really leaning in to their concerns. And to me, that is the very first and probably most important step of the de-risk phase. Right. Building buy-in by making sure that at least at the very least people are heard, but you know, people that have had other experiences might actually have like a ton of valuable potholes to avoid. Absolutely. And and I think that talking about it is a, a huge first step, but I think when you really start learning the most is when you start embedding into one or two teams that are solving the hardest problems and working kind of sitting next to them if possible to make sure that your migration can actually address what they need. And it's that tight feedback loop sitting together where you really start to understand for the first time this migration is going to truly come together. And if not, you're still in a great spot because you can still roll back. You've just tried it out with one team. Mm -hmm. But the the cardinal sin of a migration or or maybe one of the cardinal sins is trying really easy use cases first. Because it's it's trivial to make it work for like a couple like examples, but you really have to make sure you solve the hardest examples first to avoid a sense of like overconfidence about the migration. So if you're going to do some infrastructure, some sort of system to, to roll out like infrastructure servers, configurations in larger companies, there are always like teams that have like responsibility areas and the teams with like the most complicated or maybe the most like just dynamically changing systems are probably the best candidates for this. Does that make them harder to like, does it, is it harder to convince a, a team working on like a larger, more like, I guess every service is like pivotal to the business, but like services that are kind of considered high risk or like high uh, visibility to the business. Is it hard to like convince those teams to, to try something new while they're also doing something risky? I think that is definitely the case. There's a couple like different ways you see this. Sometimes teams are so busy or under so much pressure that they, they really are not open to change. And in those cases, the question is like, can you help kind of release that pressure from them? But maybe the way to reduce this pressure from them maybe is actually this migration you're proposing. So I think generally you can find a way where what you're doing is so clearly beneficial to them that they'll be very supportive. And it's really a red flag if you can't, to the extent that you have this team that should be the most excited about this problem and they're extremely unexcited about it. I think it's worth digging into that. And and one of the, the really common failure modes here is this impression that someone else is going to build it and that they're going to get stuck maintaining it. So in that case, for example, it might just be like the maintenance story is kind of um, causing them some consternation. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, if you embed someone into the team to kind of manage this migration and get it started, that can be a huge benefit because you can address concerns and, and keep like momentum going. But I guess there is that, that counter concern where it's like, when does person X disappear from my team and, and what 
what portion of this are we are is this team now responsible for? There's an interesting aspect where typically a team that's designed to do innovation work to build like a brand new system is not structured properly to maintain the system they're building. I see. So making sure you've designed a credible maintenance story where people who migrate to it don't have this latent anxiety around ending up maintaining it for you is, I think, an important part of um, de-risking it from kind of like a, a organizational perspective as well. That's awesome. I think that's a really awesome tip. So you, you, the next section of your article is about enabling and kind of the tooling that you build to make these migrations go smoothly or, or, or help people buy into these migrations. What kinds of, of tooling have you experienced in the past and how has it kind of benefited those processes? So I think the first tool most people build is actually a tool I'm going to recommend you don't build first. But the first tool that people okay. typically build is actually an, an auto ticketing system where they can file tickets against the dozens, hundreds of teams that need to do work and then kind of send them like reminders to do the work. And I think that's the wrong tool to build first. The, the third phase, which we'll get to in a second, is kind of finishing the migration. And I think that's the right time to do it. But really in the tooling phase, there's two different types of, of things that I think are really worth focusing on. The first is self-service tooling to allow people to, to do the changes themselves easily. Mm -hmm. and, and the second is figuring out how you can really do as much as possible yourself. There's a great paper out of Google called uh, uh, Large Scale Automated Refactoring using Kling um, MR. And it's basically talking about how you can actually use like MapReduce to refactor their incredibly large Romano repo. Oh, wow. And it's just so hard to do manual migrations because they have so much code that they've had to develop like really, I think, pretty novel approaches to this instead. And so but the core technique described there is looking at, you know, taking the code, writing um, some sort of tooling that can actually take the syntax trees and rewrite them programmatically. And, and often you can get surprisingly far with simply this technique, and you can actually have one mm -hmm. person do the work of hundreds, and, and the quality of the work is higher because you don't have hundreds of people doing it manually where they'll make typos or like small little mistakes. It's actually programmatically rewriting the code. That is counter to my expectations. Like when I want to hear about programmatic refactoring or, 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 you know, any sort of automated code writing, I always think of it as, as risky as far as the human could do it better. But that's actually a great point that a programmatic refactoring would probably reduce the chance of error. It, it goes counter to what my intuition says, but it's probably true. I think that's a great point where you, you have to be careful in every step. So for example, you mm -hmm. could do rewrite the entire code base at once, but then how do you even test that, right? Conversely, you could do like right. 15 like small like pieces that are actually testable, or maybe for each team, go sit down with them and rewrite only their area of kind of scope, and then they can validate it. So I think there's ways to like reduce the, the risk without having to actually do it by hand. But, but I do think that's a really important point that you just raised that done uh, callously, like this is a really easy way to cause like immense, immense problems. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, you know, it probably goes without saying at an organization, the, you know, the size of Google or the size of Uber, et cetera. But having integration style testing that, that can be relied on for these kinds of things has really helped in doing smaller refactorings uh, on, on some of the smallest, smaller scale projects that I get involved in on large infrastructure or just large teams in general. Are our integrations testing like really thorough and well done? Or do you feel like it's always kind of an assumption with, with services? I think that's a powerful question. Um, 
kind of related to rewriting these syntax trees, like one of the most important distinguished uh, questions is whether you actually have a strongly typed language or not. If you have a strongly typed language, then you have all mm-hmm. this rich metadata to do this rewrite and to validate it. And if you don't, right. then it's a lot harder. You just have very little metadata to be operating with. And I think that the same, and, and typing is like a, a weak form of testing or maybe a strong form of testing, depending on the language that you're talking about. That's true. I do think if you have great integration testing, all of these changes are just like vastly easier. I think, you know, like many things like not having tests is, is a form of technical debt. And just many teams have for locally rational reasons decided to make like expedient choices and, and then consequently have gotten to spots where it's extremely hard for them to actually modify their code. And, and without integration testing, migrations are like undoubtedly like much, much more challenging. Gotcha, gotcha. There, there was a section in the enable part of the article about documentation. Is that primarily referring to like, uh, here's the story of how you as a team is, go- is going to do this migration and just making sure that that's really kind of clear and, and well explained? I think that's right. I, I think both for self-service tooling, but also documentation, I think there's the assumption that you write it and it's finished. Mm-hmm. But what I found incredibly powerful, um, and this is actually a, a bit of a skill that I've learned from Julia Evans, who, who I get to work with, is just getting someone else to read it and give feedback. It, it's typically true the first time you document something, it, it's, it doesn't really read very easily for someone else. Yeah, it answers um, all of your all of your questions, right? Right. Uh, but but the, the, the magical thing is that if you have like three people read a piece of documentation and give you feedback, it will be so much better that if you have 200 people read it, you will save weeks of time. And so it's just like a it's just like it irrational not to have people kind of providing a few rounds of feedback on kind of the interface of your documentation or your self-service tools. But I think particularly in infrastructure, we typically don't have product managers working with us. So we don't always have people to emulate their kind of product management skill set and that user centricity. But this is just a case to gain like literally weeks or months of time back by just spending two hours getting like really directed feedback on the, the usability of your tools or, or, or your documentation. That, that's a great point. That's awesome. The last category of your article is finishing. I've worked on lots of different teams that engage in, in migrations or big, uh, you know, rewrites and stuff like that. And finishing is always a problem. I feel like no matter what, it's it's always starting them is easy. Finding a way to keep the old system, the new system in sync is is more difficult. But then finally, you know, getting to 100% seems to be the most insurmountable part of the problem. Has that been your experience as well? I think that's definitely the case. It's uh, the middle, the long middle where it's exciting to start something and it's exciting to like end it, but it's not always exciting to go from like 62 to 67% over, over one quarter. And the Uber migration of services, we were moving so many services that we literally had a percentage of services moved. And some, some quarters would move up by like 3% and it wasn't immensely rewarding to, to go up 3%. Right. But, but it had to be done. That was the hard three percent. Yeah, we were we were pretty near the end at that point, but yeah, it um every every percent was uh, hard fought at some point. I got it. I got it. What have you found is like the success factors in, in getting continuing that momentum when you get in that final stretch. There's basically three that I think are are really essential. The first the first step, and it it really needs to be the first step, is stopping the bleeding. You need to figure out how people are using the old pattern 
and make sure they no longer use the old pattern for new things. And this is essential because otherwise, um, once you do this time as your ally, like the, you can just stop working on it and the percentages will go up because people keep making new services or databases or kind of classes or whatever. And each time they do, like you, this new pattern will like, start being more prevalent. Really, the most important thing is making sure there are no new uses of the deprecated pattern. I see. The, the, the second piece is figuring out um, how, how to, earlier I mentioned not doing this initially, but at this point you do need to do it, kind of the automatic ticketing. We can automatic file tickets, um, automatically resolve tickets when people finish the work and really have like a rich tracking mechanism. And this just gives you visibility. And this visibility is important both for the individual teams, but also to explain to management why this project is important and why we need to prioritize it. And the, the very last thing is that often you'll get to like 5% left, but there'll be like this like really weird 5% of kind of slightly unmaintained or teams that are just incredibly busy. And I think like the, the secret there is to just do it yourself. I see. Not to kind of figure out how to put so much organizational pressure that this team who's already underwater also tries to do this other project. I think it's really like, how can you go help? Like be of service and, and get it accomplished. Exactly. That's great. That's great. That's super awesome. I feel like the the finishing aspect is is definitely something that I need to learn a lot more about in this projects that I, I do and the people I collaborate with. I think that that's actually a really decent place to wrap up here. I did want to invite you, Will. Is there anything that you'd like to promote or bring people's attention to before we go? As a closing thought, uh, so I, I get to work with the infrastructure engineering team here at Stripe, the data engineering, the kind of infrastructure, but also developer develop tooling as well. And we're, we're hiring, we're hiring a lot. We're both looking for some, some management and um, always looking for more engineers who are excited to work on this type of problem. I've just been really impressed with how much time Stripe gets to spend on innovation engineering, awesome. particularly in infrastructure. So if you are looking to move from kind of the, the toil of infrastructure to actually kind of the innovation of infrastructure, I think this is like a pretty exciting time to be working with us. That's awesome. I think that's a really good way to to frame that, you know, if, if that, if those sorts of problems are really interesting to you, that that sounds like a great way to, a great kind of team to be inside of. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah. the chance. Thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate it. And uh, to all our, our listeners, if you want even more interesting, so we have a great newsletter. It has uh, excellent articles from people like Will and, and others on different topics. We uh, go through and try to summarize them and make it as easy to consume as possible. That's at codingzeal.com slash interestings. You can also follow us on Twitter at codingzeal. Thanks, everyone.